the well-presented visual content that some people add into their social media posts, the catchy graphics and effects, or the fabulous backgrounds, you must have thought on occasions, that's well smart that, if only I could do something similar. Well, you can, with Canva for Teams, which helps you and your team collaborate and design the slickest content to the best business presentations and documents there is, to your simple but standout social media posts on backgrounds. Now I must admit with my own show, though I like it, the artwork comes very much after the writing and broadcasting side of things. I find it impressive, but it's quite daunting looking too. My expertise lies elsewhere, I think. But, through messing about with Canva for Teams, I see now how simply you can do it, because there's so much there to help you and captivate you. Personally, I was taken with the templates that it has for your Instagram posts and stories, and the Facebook adding effects that there is. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. You've got Canva Docs and Canva Whiteboards, providing the space you and your team need to be able to brainstorm for your best results. Canva Presentations, which will take your presentations up to that next level. Or Canva Print, so all of these inspired designs that you've created can be brought to life on anything from posters to mugs and all printed planet friendly mess about with it for ages you'll be discovering no end of great stuff plus with features such as magic design where by simply uploading an image you can watch as a collection of unique templates appear that you can customize to your liking or simply finish with a few personal touches or magic write where if you're suffering writer's block then you simply enter a prompt into and it generates a first draft for you You'll find Canva, its countless premium fonts and graphics, and its free library of videos and pictures at your disposal, loaded with all you need to make the best creations you can and to support, perhaps even suggest, your creative process each step of the way. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me TCE. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash T-C-E for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular slice of true crime tales from my North Wales spare room that I strive to be ones that you're unfamiliar with, that may horrify or mind-boggle you but which are all true and that I've scoured the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. Of course he's here, the true crime enthusiast cat, Pixie, is by my feet. And you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that the show is for, are at the end of my voice. It is as fabulous as ever having you joining me in the MOG today. I thank you kindly for it. And I do hope that as you have done, it is for a tale that finds you and your loved ones all good, all safe, and all well. No preamble here this time, we're just down to the accounts. Yes, this is a pair of tales that I've brought this time around. And here, we have two cases that deal with surely the darkest and most impossible of crimes to fathom. Phyllicide. There's fairly little to research on each of the disturbing tales I've curated here but I don't believe that should stop a tale being told, and I've done the very best I can with what I had to work with here. 
The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children and including injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Sins of the Father. The first account of our tale starts back in 1991 with an arranged Muslim marriage between 19-year-old Shazia Rathor and 25-year-old Zainul Abedin Zaidi who came to live together in the town of Slough in Berkshire. Zaidi came from a strict Muslim family and soon imposed and came to expect the same strict Sharia law guidelines in his own marriage. According to Shazia's twin sister, Nazia Rathor, Saidi was extremely possessive and bad-tempered, ruled strictly and generally wouldn't let his wife out of his sight when he was not at work as a banker. Nazia recalled, Our family was generally quite liberal. We were allowed to go out. We went to mixed schools. We found Zaidi's family much more traditional thinking. Now, for traditional thinking, take draconian for some of the things Zaidi would not permit Shazia to do included visiting the doctor's surgery, going into town alone, or even driving while they were living together in Slough. Now this miserable sounding existence, I know it is held in some beliefs to behave like this, but this is not a marriage at all, it is a sham existence. Over six years did produce two children, a daughter, Saba, in 1994, and a son, Zeshan, the following year. But by 1997, the unhappy marriage had finally broken down irretrievably, and Shazia, who worked as a social worker at Wexham Park Hospital in Slough, had finally left her jealous husband and moved with their two children to a new home, Highfield, in the suburb of Great Hollands in Bracknell, in Berkshire, and where soon afterwards, she began divorce proceedings against Zaidi. They did come to an arrangement whereas every other weekend, Zaidi would have weekend custody of the children back at the couple's former home in Goodman Park in Slough. But, this was an arrangement that reportedly, neither side was too happy about. Shazia's neighbour, Anthony Taylor, later told how he often saw Shazia leaning over the bonnet of her husband's car and grabbing her children's arms through the car window when he picked them up on his fortnightly access visits. He added, The children got upset, especially the young girl. The mother seemed to be reluctant to let them go and was really clinging on to the children. Now after the couple split, Zaidi, so filled with rage and hatred against Shazia for leaving him, forbade her from even speaking to him or even looking at him when he picked up the children and would not even let his wife say goodbye to her children as he drove them off. In 1999, Shazia was attending, as part of her role as a social worker, a conference on domestic violence among Asian families, a subject likely striking home to her when she met a man named Saeed Dogar, a Pakistan-born social services manager and Bracknell resident who had separated from his wife by arranged marriage a year previously. 
They struck up a close friendship after Shazia asked for his help in applying for a job, a friendship that soon deepened into something more, for they became lovers. Later that year, they even married in a Muslim ceremony, the one they kept a closely guarded secret, because both Saeed and Shazia were still married, though Shazia was in the process of getting divorced. Only a select few members of each's trusted inner circle knew of their marriage, but the rest it was kept from. Especially from Zainulabadin Zaidi. On Friday the 17th of March 2000, Chazia had been planning an evening meal to celebrate the Muslim festival of Eid al-Adha with Saeed and her family. I'm not sure if I've said that right. I think I have, but I'm not sure. And that afternoon, Saeed had gone to a butcher's shop in Chalvi near Slough, about a 30-minute drive away, to collect what he described as a sacrificial lamb for the meal to mark the festival. Once it was paid for and collected, shortly after 4pm, he rang Shazia's mobile phone as he was driving back towards her home to ask her if there was anything else he needed to collect whilst out, grocery-wise, and to make sure that Zaidi had picked up the children. That weekend was his weekend to have them. But there was no answer. In fact, there was no answer to his repeated calls. He recalled later that year, I thought she was in the bathroom or dressing up. That's why she wasn't responding. Saeed eventually called her twin sister, Nazia, to see if she could get through to her, but Nazia was unable to either. Eventually, just after 4.20pm, with him almost back at the house, Shazia's phone was answered after repeated calls, but by a police officer who told him to wait where he was in his car in a nearby car park and officers would be there with him shortly. It was then when Saeed first realised something was very seriously wrong. He said later, Two police officers came to see me, and one of them told me what had happened. I made a call to Nazia and told her to come as soon as possible, because something terrible had happened. Something terrible is an understatement. Just after 4pm that afternoon, Chazia had answered the knock at the door to her estranged husband, Zaidi, but of course, without looking at him or speaking to him, failed to notice both that he was unusually wearing gloves and that even more unusually was carrying a large kitchen knife with him. Perhaps not even saying a word, Zaidi suddenly launched into a murderous and ferocious attack upon his estranged wife, stabbing Shazia in the face, the chest, and several times in the neck in cold blood. Though she did her best to defend herself against the attack, as was later evidence from the defensive wounds to her hands and wrists, so murderous was his assault that Shazia never really stood a chance, for she was left with several deep stab wounds including a wound of up to 20 centimetres in depth to the right side of her throat. Leaving Shazia lying in a widening pool of blood in the blood-spattered living room, Zaidi then turned to look at the two terrified figures that were watching from the stairs, and then, bolting the front door to prevent them escaping, 
pursued his children upstairs. His children, who had just witnessed their father slaughter their mother. Now, although the youngest child, Zeshan, had had the presence of mind, despite his terror, to contact the emergency services from the telephone upstairs, and indeed was connected to an operator for 109 seconds pleading for help, it was ultimately to do no good. Even as emergency services, police officers and paramedics raced to the scene, alerted by the shocked operator. After slitting his sister's throat in front of him, Zaidi then stabbed his son Zeshan several times in the front and back of the throat and left both of his children lying in the bedroom. He then headed downstairs where he disposed of the knife he'd just used to commit filicide in a bowl underneath the kitchen sink and fled, leaving a trail of blood smears and blood-stained footprints, getting into his car and driving off. There are no words, eh? I ask you, what defines horror beyond belief more than that? So ferocious had the attack been on all three that the knife had been left bent and blunted. Unthinkable, wicked beyond description. But an example that cements it, if you didn't think it already, then I shall bring shortly. Now, after committing such an atrocity, Zaidi drove home to Slough, where he changed out of his bloodstained clothing and disposed of it. He set off once again in his car only a short time later, but soon stopped and abandoned it nearby, before hailing a taxi to the home of a friend of his seeking shelter. Now, there are conflicting reports here. There are accounts that say that that Friday evening, Zaidi had headed first to a friend's home in Twickenham in West London, whilst others, and the majority of accounts found through researching in fact say this, claim he'd headed to an address in the town of High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. What there are no conflicting reports about is that Zaidi had even stopped off to get a takeaway curry on the way. Yes, I kid you not. He even had an appetite after what he'd done. Meanwhile, long before Zaidi was collecting his curry, four police officers summoned to Shazia's home by the distressed operator had arrived only minutes after the emergency call was made, only to find themselves in the middle of a nightmare. The doorstep, door handle and the unlocked front door itself of Highfields were smeared with bloodstains and heading inside, officers discovered Shazia Zaidi lying face down on the blood-soaked carpet of the living room. A trail of blood led upstairs to the main bedroom, where officers found the distressing sight of the two Zaidi children lying within a few feet of each other on the floor. The first paramedic to arrive on the scene, Philip Turton, described later, There was a large amount of blood on the floor around the head and neck of the female, and on her clothes. Upstairs, both children were lying on the bedroom floor. They were unconscious, and they both had lacerations in their necks. He furthered that the top of Saza's t-shirt was soaked in blood, and the receiver of the bedroom telephone was also heavily blood-smeared. 
No pulse could be found on either child. All attempts to resuscitate them proved futile, and even as the last resort to assist was given, the defibrillator showed no evidence of any electrical activity. Now, I cannot even begin to imagine how distressing a scene that must be, but what I can imagine is how loath you would be to stop trying and admit that your efforts are in vain. I mean, you wouldn't want to stop, would you, until you physically couldn't do any more. And what a call that must be to make. The real stuff of nightmares, that is. The family's next-door neighbour, Anita Greaves, told later how she had unknowingly heard the last moments of the children. She told police that she heard a commotion coming from next door, saying, I heard the children screaming and the little girl shouting for her mum. I heard footsteps going up the stairs. It just sounded like they were fighting. Anita merely thought the children were playing. And why on earth wouldn't she have? For who can even comprehend or imagine such sounds as being something as evil happening? Now, it could have been down to reports from Shazia's family, or Saeed, or even any of the neighbours of the family. But within an hour of the bodies being discovered, Zainul Abedin Zaidi had become the primary person of interest in the inquiry, led by Detective Superintendent Trevor Davis, and a nationwide appeal was made to trace his whereabouts. Only the following morning, the Saturday, he was arrested at a house in Mentmore Road in High Wycombe, when the owner of the house, a friend of Zaidi's who had given him refuge the previous evening when he had claimed that he needed a place to stay due to domestic problems, had seen this appeal and had alerted police to Zaidi's whereabouts. No charges were reportedly raised against this friend for harbouring Zaidi. He was horrified when he discovered why Zaidi was wanted and did the right thing immediately. Now, although when he was arrested traces of his wife's blood were found splattered on his shoes and watch, plus the disposable blood-stained gloves he'd worn and he had disposed of in the bin at the family home, complete with traces of his DNA, and plus he'd been seen arriving at the property, Zaidi resolutely denied his involvement in the death of his family. He spoke only minimally to police officers during interview, and aside from trying to blame the three deaths onto Saeed Dogar, his ex-wife's new husband, would say nothing throughout interviews except, I did not murder my wife and children. You can't make some people up, can you? On the morning of Tuesday the 21st of March, as the bouquets of flowers and tributes to the tragic family built up on the street outside their former home, left by deeply shocked and saddened neighbours and friends, and you always see haunting images concerned with any case such as this, don't you? Zainal Abedin Zaidi appeared before Slough magistrates, charged with the murders of his wife, Shazia Zaidi, and his two children, Saba and Zeshan, where he was remanded in custody to await trial. Then 34-year-old Zaidi issued a plea of not guilty to three counts of murder when he appeared for his trial at Reading Crown Court on Monday the 23rd of October 2000 before presiding Mr Justice Moses. 
and where prosecuting counsel Adrian Redgrave Casey told the court that Zaidi had visited his 27-year-old wife, whom, he added, was divorcing him, to pick up their children for the weekend at 4pm on March 17th of that year. He continued, Once inside, he went for her with a knife. She did her best to defend herself, as witnessed by the several deep cuts to her hands and the blood spattered about the living room. But sadly, she stood no real chance. He stabbed her in the face, in the chest, and several times in the neck. As a result, she suffered wounds as deep as 20 centimetres, which killed her. 20 centimetres is almost 8 inches. Mr Redgrave stressed to the jury that the attack upon Shazia had been so ferocious that the point of the knife was said to have been left blunted. He continued, Appalling as it is, it is a fact that the two children saw that happen. He then recounted to the court how, still wearing his bloodstained gloves, Zaidi had bolted the front door to prevent his children escaping and then raced upstairs after them where they had called 999 from the main bedroom. And whether it was in cold blood or seeing red in the height of bloodlust, who knows. But once upstairs, he then slaughtered his two young children. Dr Vesna Jurovic, a home office pathologist, had carried out the post-mortem examinations on the three family members the day after the murder and told the court that Zeshan had suffered stab wounds to the front and back of his neck, but also had defence-style wounds to his hands, and his sister Saba suffered a wound which stretched right across her throat so deeply that it had penetrated her spine. She had almost been decapitated. During the five-day trial at Reading Crown Court, this was the only moment that Zaidi showed any emotion because at hearing this evidence, he sobbed loudly for the first time and became so distressed that he had to be led from the dock for 15 minutes while he recuperated. Now, I said a few minutes ago that what transpired in that house, you can barely imagine, and you'll be hard-pressed to define anything more horror beyond belief even trying to imagine, wouldn't you? Imagine hearing that 109-second telephone call from the youngest Saidi child, Zashan, then. The jury at Reading Crown Court were indeed played the recording of the final moments of the two Zaidi children, as Zashan's call to the emergency services had been recorded and was presented in evidence. The entirety of it in transcript has been released, and I'll bring it here as follows in a second. Now you may think, that's never 109 seconds that, but bear in mind the events I shall try to clarify for you. I do warn also that it is one of the most tragic and harrowing of such transcripts I've ever brought in the history of the show. And as for hearing it, well it's not something I either want to or could imagine really. The transcript goes as follows. The operator answers the emergency call by saying, Emergency services. Zeshan. Hello, can I get that? Can I have the police, please? Operator. The police, thank you. Zeshan. Oh, now there is an untimed period of noisy breathing, but interrupted with faint screaming 
that can be heard in the background before Zeshan continues. Can I? Can I? Operator, if you can bear with me, if you stay on the line, I'm connecting you now. To the controller, once the police, not ringing. A period of noisy breathing can then be heard before the operator replies. Yeah, if you can stay on the line, I'll be as quick as I can. Zeshan, quickly, because my dad um is getting my mum and stabbing and killing her. Operator, yeah, I'll be as quick as I can for you now. There followed a period of silence, but screaming that could be heard in the background. Bleeping tones, as though the caller was inadvertently or accidentally pressing buttons on the phone. And then another scream. The operator added, Hello, you're through to the emergency services. Is anyone there? There was a period of background conversation here. What was said couldn't be made out, apart from the last sentence, which was heard clearly. It's a simple four words, yet when you put it into the context of what I've described here, it remains one of the most disturbing pieces of transcript evidence I've ever recounted on the show. The final line, before the line went dead, was from six-year-old Zeshan, and who said simply, Don't kill me, Daddy. At this point, the line went dead, and the call disconnected, as shortly after that, Saidi cut his son's throat. Now, that is what defines the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Whilst others stared blankly, one man on the jury was so upset he held his head in his hands as the tape was played, and one of the four women jurors shook her head very slowly as the last scream was heard and the call ended. Mr Redgrave, prosecuting, said, The conclusion is inescapable. The child that was last to die must have witnessed not only the killing of their mother, but also the other child. He reiterated that just a minute or so after Shazi was killed, a child's voice could be heard screaming, Don't kill me, Daddy! Continuing, But he did. Both died from deep stab wounds to the neck. Their bodies were found lying a few feet from each other. He stabbed and killed those two children in cold blood. Saidi himself refused to give evidence during the trial. But the evidence against him was overwhelming. You had a voice from beyond the grave, that of six-year-old Zeshan, and the testimony of forensic scientist Miss Harkiran Ahmet, who told the court of the discovery of the pair of protective gloves which Saidi had worn throughout the killing spree that showed his actions were premeditated and that blood matching Shazia's had been found on his shoes and watch, with the chances of it being anyone else's as one in a million. The jury also heard of the explanation Zaidi had offered that Saeed Dogar was responsible for the deaths, an account which was destroyed when Mr Redgrave said it was physically impossible for him to have been at the house at the time of the killing. Mr Dogar was, as I said, at a butcher's shop in Chalvi near Slough, a half hour's drive away, buying meat for their meal when the murders happened. He'd paid for the meal by credit card which was time-stamped at 3.45pm, and had arrived at Shazia's home to find the aftermath of the tragedy. 
as Zeshan's call was logged at 4.09pm, it would have been an impossible journey for him to make. On Wednesday the 1st of November 2000, it took the jury of eight men and four women just two and a half hours deliberation to find Zainulabuddin Zaidi unanimously guilty of all three murders, a verdict that Zaidi remained impassive at as it was delivered. Sentencing Zaidi, Mr Justice Moses said that the former banker had shown little remorse and had persisted in denying responsibility for the attack. Passing down three life sentences, he told Zaidi, I'm quite satisfied you came armed with a knife. Once in the house, you stabbed and cut Shazia's throat. You then stabbed and cut the throats of both your son and daughter. They knew what you were about to do. One of them pleaded with you not to kill them. The judge then paid tribute to relatives of the victims, saying, I admire the restraint and command of emotion you have all shown throughout this case. Zaidi was then taken away to begin his sentence. After the verdict, Shazia's family issued a statement saying, We are relieved that justice has been served. However, this doesn't ease our grief of losing our three cherished loved ones. Our family will eventually get through all the grief and hurt by being together as always as a family and by remembering our happy times together. The only comfort we have is that they are happy together in heaven, in peace, and finally free from the misery and torment he brought to their lives. Detective Superintendent Trevor Davis of Thames Valley Police, who had led the investigation, later called Zaidi a pathetic excuse for a human being, and condemned him for putting the witnesses through the ordeal of testifying, saying, Without doubt, this was one of the most appalling sights I have ever seen, for to my dying day, I will never forget the injuries inflicted upon those children. For him to deny it with the evidence so overwhelmingly compelling is diabolical. The jury having to listen to that tape, and the family members having to listen to that tape of Saba asking the police for help, and Zeshan pleading for his own life was dreadful. In September 2005, Mr Justice Moses stated at the High Court in London that Zaidi would have to serve a minimum tariff of 20 years in prison before parole was considered, with the 7 months and 10 days he had spent on remand before being sentenced being deducted from this. Even when the 20 years were up, Zaidi would only be released if the parole board considered he posed no danger to the public and would then of course remain on life licence for the rest of his days, subject to recall to prison if he puts a foot wrong. By November 2022, he had been referred for his second parole appeal, as a spokesperson for the parole board said, in a statement that we've largely heard several times before on the show, and which I shall repeat here, we can confirm the parole review of Zainalabuddin Zaidi has been referred to the parole board by the Secretary of State for Justice and is following standard processes. Parole board decisions are solely focused on what risk a prisoner could present to the public if released and whether that risk is manageable in the community. A panel will carefully examine a huge range of evidence, including details of the original crime and any evidence of behaviour change, 
as well as explore the harm done and impact the crime has had on the victims. Members read and digest hundreds of pages of evidence and reports in the lead-up to an oral hearing. Evidence from witnesses such as probation officers, psychiatrists and psychologists, officials supervising the offender in prison, as well as victim personal statements may be given at the hearing. It is standard for the prisoner and witnesses to be questioned at length during the hearing, which often lasts a full day or more. Parole reviews are undertaken thoroughly and with extreme care. Protecting the public is our number one priority. Now, previously, Zaidi had continued to deny the murders and had not shown an iota of remorse, and at the previous parole hearing, had given evidence through a video link. In February 2023, Zaidi gave evidence to the three-person parole panel via his lawyer, however, was refused parole, as the board decided that Zaidi was still too dangerous to be released or to be moved to open prison conditions, stating. We can confirm that a panel of the parole board refused the release of Zainal Abedin Zaidi following an oral hearing. The panel also refused to recommend a move to open prison conditions. In a summary of their findings, the parole board said at the time of the killings, Zaidi had been controlling, willing to use violence, and had unhealthy views on relationships and his role. It stated that he'd done little to challenge these beliefs whilst in prison, and added, Greater depth of understanding had not been possible because Mr. Zaidi had not explored these areas in detail during accredited programs during his sentence. He had shown limited insight and had been inflexible in his thinking. The probation witness expressed continuing concerns about Mr. Zaidi's beliefs, which had underpinned his offences. The summary concludes. After considering the circumstances of his offending, the progress made while in custody, and the other evidence presented at the hearings, the panel was not satisfied that Mr. Zaidi was suitable for release. Given that key areas remained likely to be addressed, the panel considered that Mr. Zaidi was appropriately located in custody where outstanding levels of risk could be contained. Under current legislation, he will be eligible for a further review in due course. The date of the next review will be set by the Ministry of Justice. It is reported that Zaidi will be eligible for a new parole appeal in 2025, when he will be 60 years old. But until that time, he currently remains in a maximum security prison. One time the parole board has gotten a decision right there, I feel. For our second and final account of the episode, and it's been a frustrating account to research this, for there is a fair bit of contradictory accounting of some detail, which I shall address as the account goes on. We head back first to the West Midlands, again to 1991, and a chance meeting between two people, a woman named Jane Jones, and a then 29-year-old man named Gary Fisher who was somewhat of a troubled soul, shall we say, and who had by then racked up several criminal convictions. Though he and Jane had an on-off relationship over the next few years, it did produce three children, a son and two daughters, 
and when Jane and the children decided to move to Cardigan in Ceredigion in West Wales, Fisher reportedly went with them. As I said, the relationship was very on and off due to Fisher's unpredictable and violent nature, but by 1995, it was very firmly off, with them splitting for good. And whilst Jane and the children moved into Golga Castorth, Fisher returned to live in the West Midlands, taking a property in Kent's Close in Solly Hull. Now, reportedly for a time after this, there were several threats from Fisher, who had even threatened to kidnap and kill Jane and their children. But these threats died down, and he was largely gone from their lives. Reportedly, the family were estranged from him and went years without speaking to him. Very often for the best, and a long time coming, things such as that. However, by 2004, Fisher had befriended the children's grandmother and had re-established contact with his then teenage children, eventually becoming a regular visitor to them in West Wales, where by all accounts, and perhaps in some ways unconventionally, he indeed did try to make up for lost time. Now in 2006, and again there are conflicting reports about this aspect too, for some confirm it, whilst others deny it. But in 2006, Fisher's then 14-year-old eldest daughter Sasha, who's also named by her first name of Chanel, was allegedly raped by a local man in his car. Her mother Jane later said that the police were called in as a result of this, but Sasha couldn't bring herself to make a formal statement, and indeed, no charges were ever reportedly raised against the man. Following this, it was the start of a somewhat downward spiral for Sasha. In December 2006, she was admitted to hospital after a drug overdose and had her stomach pumped. Sometime later, she tried to throw herself into the River Tafey at Cardigan, though luckily, she was seen hanging from a bridge over the river and was pulled to safety by her elder brother, Cade, and this was followed in February 2009 by another overdose. Now, Sasha's mum Jane claims that Sasha had received counselling post-2006 and was diagnosed as having post-traumatic stress. The incidents I've described, she added, were seen as more a cry for help than serious attempts at suicide. As I said a moment ago, there are conflicting reports about this alleged rape. Jane is adamant that her daughter was raped and was quoted later as saying, I felt she was upset by it. She was in fear of the man. But a close friend of Sasha's, who didn't want to be named, said later, I knew Sasha more than most, and she was never raped. Whether she had been or not, it's fair to say that Sasha was a troubled young woman. However, she'd begun to turn her life around, and by the start of 2009, then 17-year-old Sasha had enrolled in college to study childcare. She was, alongside her brother and sister, still in regular contact with her father, Gary Fisher, who was a regular visitor over to Cardigan, and at the start of the summer holidays, he'd come across to West Wales for a week-long visit, taking the children out for day trips and taking them camping. As I said before, perhaps this was a somewhat unconventional visit, for he reportedly let his son mess about with hunting knives and gave him a lock knife to look after, and even began offering his children amphetamine, 
which reportedly Sasha certainly accepted from him. It's perhaps not the best way to build bridges. He would also have them out at all hours of the night, and in the early hours of Sunday, August the 2nd, 2009, he became keen to take the children out again for a drive. To where and for what reason, who knows? Now, reportedly, the two younger children, not fancying going out at stupid o'clock in the morning, had feigned being asleep, and it was only Sasha who could be persuaded to go by Fisher. And so at 3.30am, got into his beige-coloured Ford Fiesta, and off they set. Reportedly, they drove around the Cardigan area all night, and by that Sunday morning, or possibly that Sunday afternoon, this is another bit that there are conflicting reports about, the time, Fisher and Sasha were parked up in the car park of the Angel Hotel on the junction of Morgan Street and St. Mary Street in Cardigan, where an argument began between them. A witness named Alice Thomas, who lived close by to the hotel, in the centre of Cardigan, heard what she thought was a man bullying a female, hearing a man saying, Get in! And another witness with her, hearing a female saying, No! As best as can be pieced together, Fisher and his daughter had begun rowing after her constantly texting her boyfriend, Iraq war veteran Brian Powell, and telling her father that she would rather be spending time with Brian than him. He had in turn called his daughter a slag for saying this. It seems a somewhat overreaction this, doesn't it? It's nothing compared to what happened next. At some point in that car park, Gary Fisher stabbed his daughter some 22 times with a 12-inch hunting knife he had on his person, knifing her in the face, the head and chest, and twice in the heart, while she was still sat in the passenger seat. Covering her body with a blue sleeping bag, still leaving her strapped in, he then set off on a macabre and meaningless journey around the West Wales area with no destination seemingly in mind, except one. At about 2.30pm, Jane Jones saw Fisher sitting in his car close to a home in Golliger Castleth. He waved at his former partner with a smirk on his face, and as he drove past her, his grin widened and he looked upwards towards the sky. Jane Jones contacted the police some three minutes later to report her daughter missing having a bad feeling about what she'd just seen, although she did not, or could not, see the body of her teenage daughter slumped in the passenger seat. Now it certainly wasn't the first time that she'd contacted police about Gary Fisher, I shall come on to explain about that a bit more later, but at 2.33pm, Jane contacted police once more, and as a result, Dovid Powis police were on the lookout for him. For the next few hours, Fisher drove aimlessly around with the blood-soaked corpse of his daughter in the passenger seat beside him. His car was caught on camera at Llandewi Velfry, near Narbuth, and he also travelled around the areas of Lampeter, Poppet Sands and Gubert-on-Sea. At some point during this journey, he threw Sasha's mobile phone, a pink-coloured Samsung SGH U600 model, out of the car window and reportedly around 7pm, he stopped and made a series of telephone calls to his sister, Susan Mabbott, 
though only speaking to his niece Zoe, who had answered her mother's phone and confessed to her what he had done. Her mother in turn then contacted police after what Zoe told her, thus intensifying the urgency of finding and catching Fisher. Finally, at 9.15pm, a camera picked up Fisher's beige-coloured fiesta in College Street in the Keradigian town of Lampeter, and some 15 minutes later, alerted officers spotted the vehicle on the A482 at Pont Craven, heading towards the seaside town of Aberaeron. As a police car approached to intercept him, Fisher initially slowed down, but then sped off again and led police on a high-speed chase towards the coast and onto the Aberaeron to Aberystwyth Road, before he was finally slowed down by alerted officers who had gotten ahead of him to intercept and had at 10.15pm deployed a spiked stinger device across the road, puncturing all four of the Ford Fiesta's tyres. By chance, a TV documentary cameraman was in the back of a police car and filmed the Fiesta passing over the Stinger device, although I was unable to find out for what program this was, or see the footage of this whilst I was researching. This move did not stop Fisher initially, but as the punctured tyres wore away, his control of the vehicle became more and more hampered and erratic, until he swerved into a lay-by and crashed into a parked camper van moments later causing the passengers inside the van to suffer minor injuries, according to Dufford Powys Police. Fisher himself suffered a head injury in the crash, and as he was arrested and taken to Bronglass Hospital in Aberystwyth, shocked officers discovered underneath the sleeping bag in the passenger footwell the butchered body of his eldest daughter, Sasha. At the hospital, Fisher told staff nurse Eileen Jenkins, I killed her. I stabbed her because she was in so much pain. I will explain the story Fisher gave to explain what he meant here shortly. Now, although he gave what was described later as a graphic account to medical staff and a psychiatrist who was called to examine him, telling him how he parked the car behind the Angel Hotel and went to the passenger side door, saying, She was shocked to see the knife. She tried to get away to resist, but she couldn't because of the seatbelt. When he was discharged from hospital, aside from giving one account which I shall come on to shortly, Fisher would say next to nothing to police bar no comment during interviews at Aberystwyth Police Station, even with an appointed barrister present. When asked if it was his intention to harm himself, he did reportedly reply, It's either that or doing life and when Fisher was asked what his plans were now, he'd replied, to spend the rest of my life in prison. On the evening of Tuesday the 4th of August 2009, 47-year-old Gary Fisher was charged with the murder of his daughter, Chanel Sasha Jones, and the following morning appeared before Thlanethley Magistrates Court, where he was remanded in custody to Swansea Prison to await trial. Hundreds of people attended the funeral of tragic Sasha on Friday the 21st of August 2009 at St Mary's Church in Cardigan, in a move-in service that was attended by her many friends and even former teachers, all wearing her favourite colours of pink and black. Her boyfriend, Brian Powell, 
who was at the time in prison for stealing his father's car, was even granted compassionate leave to attend the funeral, which was followed by an interment at Cardigan Cemetery. Countless tears were shed, and the question on everyone's lips, why? Why indeed? Fisher was no less forthcoming when on the 23rd of October of that year, he appeared at Swansea Crown Court via video link from the city's prison for a plea and case management hearing, to which he entered a plea of not guilty. Balding and wearing spectacles, Fisher spoke only to confirm his identity and then listened quietly as Christopher Clee Casey, the barrister leading the prosecution, informed presiding Mr Justice John Deal about the progress of the case. His trial was then set for March of the following year. When he appeared before presiding Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones at Swansea Crown Court in March 2010, a trial which had to be restarted after the first day and a new jury sworn in after a member was taken ill overnight, Fisher still denied murder but pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of his daughter, offering the bizarre explanation that her death was part of a suicide pact with Sasha that he had lost the nerve to complete following her death, which he claimed she had asked him to cause, I quote, to end her pain. Outlining the case, Mr. Clee for the prosecution said that Fisher had stabbed Sasha Jones several times in a car park behind the Angel Hotel in Cardigan on Sunday the 2nd of August of the previous year. The court hearing that the pair had been out in his car since the early hours of that morning, explaining. Fisher stopped the car behind the Angel Hotel in a shady area so nobody could see him. He later told police, I got out of the car, took the knife, went to the passenger door and opened it. She was shocked to see the knife and tried to get away, but she couldn't because of the seatbelt. Mr. Clee continued. He said he stabbed her many times and she was struggling. During the struggle, he missed her once and ended up stabbing himself in the arm. He said he covered her with a sleeping bag and reclined the seats. The court heard that a subsequent post-mortem showed that Sasha had suffered a total of 22 wounds, including defensive injuries to her hands, chest, face and head, including one or possibly two stab wounds to her heart. Fisher then drove around with her bloodied body in the car for hours, his exact route unknown, but then later rang his sister Susan Mabbott to confess to killing Sasha though the telephone was answered by his niece, Zoe Mabbott. The court was read a statement by Zoe that she was on holiday in Devon with her mother, the defendant's sister, when Fisher rang her mother's mobile phone. In the statement, she said, He asked for my mum. I said, She's not here. And it went dead. So I called him back. He said, I'm really, really sorry, but I've done something wrong. You don't want to know what? I asked what, and he said, I don't think you want to know. She said the line then went dead again, but Fisher rang back, and this time he said, I'm sorry, but I've just killed your oldest cousin. She's lying in the car, and it's freezing. I've just stabbed myself with a butcher's knife. I have to go now because the police might trace this call. I'm going to take the battery out of the phone so they can't trace me. 
I won't get into trouble for what I've done. I'm going to finish it later. And don't worry, I will not go to prison. Zoe Mabbott described Fisher as being quite calm, although he sounded scared. She then telephoned her mother, who contacted the police, the jury was told. The second report from a family member concerning Fisher that day. Mr. Clee then described Fisher's arrest and said that once arrested, Fisher had confessed to hospital staff that he had killed his daughter with a hunting knife. Continuing, he gave them a graphic account of the killing of his daughter. He said at various stages that his daughter had told him that she wanted to die and told the nurse he had stabbed her because she was in so much pain. He said that he had planned it for two and a half months, saying, I felt she was suffering and I wanted to help her to die. The reason? The court heard Fisher later claimed that his daughter had been raped in 2006 and, in his words, she couldn't live with the thought of that. He claimed they'd agreed a suicide pact as a consequence and he'd been carrying out his daughter's wishes but that after killing Sasha, he'd lost his bottle and could not kill himself. But Mr. Clee described this claim as nonsense telling Swansea Crown Court. Sasha made no such complaint to police. He went on to describe to the court that the teenager had twice been admitted to hospital in the past after taking overdoses, but medical staff didn't believe they were genuine suicide attempts, and, if anything, he claimed, the evidence suggested that Sasha very much wanted to live. Sasha, he said, had been making plans to go to college, and only the night before her death had texted her boyfriend saying that she couldn't wait to see him as soon as Fisher had left her home in Cardigan and returned to his own home in Solly Hall near Birmingham. Mr. Clee added, He was jealous and controlling. No one would have chosen to be stabbed to death. This wasn't in any way, shape or form a suicide pact. It is simply an attempt by him to avoid his responsibility for what he did. At the end of the prosecution case at Swansea Crown Court, Fisher's barrister Elwyn Evans Casey said her client would not be given evidence from the witness box and no defence evidence would be put before the jury. Swansea Crown Court had already heard how Fisher refused to answer questions from police after his arrest and after Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones warned him the jury may draw such inferences as would appear proper from Fisher's failure to go into the witness box, Miss Evans said he had already been warned and appreciated the situation. Following closing speeches, the jury then retired on the morning of Wednesday the 10th of March 2010 to deliberate. After just an hour's deliberation, the jury unanimously rejected Fisher's claim of manslaughter, but not murder, due to the failed suicide pact angle. And addressing Fisher, the judge said, By law, there is only one sentence for murder, and in due course, you will be sentenced to imprisonment for life. However, Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones told the jury that he didn't intend to sentence Fisher immediately, but would rather fix the minimum tariff that Fisher must serve behind bars only after he had studied psychiatric reports. Fisher showed no emotion and said nothing, as he was then led away to await sentencing.
Now, once the guilty verdict had been delivered, Mr. Clee then revealed to the court Fisher's lengthy and disturbing previous criminal record, stretching back over a 30-year period. The first was for actual bodily harm and possessing a weapon for which he was fined at Solihull Magistrates Court in August 1979, aged 17. A year later, he attacked a girl with a 35-inch lathe chain that he'd been using as a belt and was convicted of wounding and jailed for three months. In February 1985, he was convicted of three counts of criminal damage and one of theft relating to the family of a previous girlfriend. And in the same year, he was jailed for 12 months after taking offence against a young woman. Mr. Clee explained that Fisher began by painting white crosses on the front door of the woman's home. He then stole a headstone from a local graveyard and left it outside the house before Mr. Clee added, he also put the head of a cat he'd killed outside the house. He sounds delightful, this guy, doesn't he? Whilst in prison for these offences, Fisher was at some point transferred to Ashworth's secure mental health unit for a period, before he was eventually released sometime in 1987. Two years later, he was given a three-month suspended sentence at Solihull Magistrates Court for a wounding incident involving a hammer, and was also jailed again for six months in 1992 for trying to force a previous girlfriend out of her workplace by using a hunting knife when he turned up there unannounced. A nasty and disturbed sounding piece of work this one, I'm sure you'll agree. But his worst crime, the murder of his teenage daughter, came after what appeared to have been a period of calm in Fisher's life, for though he was wanted by another force in connection with an assault at the time of the killing, more than a decade and a half had passed since he had had any involvement with the courts. To all outward appearances, he looked like a father working hard to re-establish contact with his children, who he'd been estranged from until he re-established contact with them five years before the murder. You couldn't be more wrong. Sasha's mother, Jane Jones, in a statement read out by a police officer after the verdict, said, my lovely daughter Chanel will be so sadly missed by her sister and two brothers, and all her family, and her boyfriend Brian. No innocent person anywhere should have their life taken by another or have to go through extreme fear. We cannot live forever, but no life should end with this suffering. As I'm not a person who seeks revenge, I wish Gary Fisher no harm, but I do feel that he should be locked up for a long time. Things have previously been tough since she'd been raped. However, she'd started to come out of all that and she wanted to get back with her boyfriend and wanted to buy a house. She's been through so much in her short life and I was, and we all are, so proud of how she was turning her life around for the better. She had so many ambitions. We'd become good friends and I just wanted to be there for her. It upsets me how awful and petrifying those last few hours must have been for Chanel. Gary Fisher has put us all through this, not only myself, but my other children and family. He seems to have no remorse by claiming this was an idiotic attempt at a suicide pact. The statement adds, My children are now sadly in fear of their own father, and it haunts me, and always will, 
as to how petrifying and frightening those last awful hours must have been for my Chanel. We all feel totally devastated and in total shock by this awful tragedy and how completely this has shattered our lives. My beautiful daughter, Chanel Sasha, is missed more and more as time goes by, and words cannot really describe the awful deep feelings we're experiencing. Dovid Powis Police also welcomed the verdict in a statement read out by Detective Sergeant Stephen Davis, who said, Sasha Jones's life was brought to an early tragic end by her own father in August 2009. Dovid Powers Police hope that today's verdict will start to bring some closure for the family and help them come to terms with this awful tragedy. Our thoughts are with Sasha's family at this most tragic time. When he appeared back at Swansea Crown Court for sentencing on the 29th of March, following completion of psychiatric reports, Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones rejected any idea that Fisher's brief version of events bore any truth and said that Fisher was not sufficiently mentally ill to have a defence in law to the charge of murder. He said the evidence during the trial clearly suggested his daughter was looking forward to the future despite suffering an alleged rape ordeal, and as at his trial Fisher had refused to enter the witness box to explain what had happened, the consequence was, was to that day, only Fisher knew what had triggered his murderous attack on Sasha. Passing sentence, Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones told Fisher, You've been convicted of the murder of your daughter Sasha Jones. This is the most appalling waste of a young life a pointless death which will leave a permanent shadow on the lives of her family and friends. Your claim that you killed her as an act of mercy is an obvious and wicked lie. This was a most brutal killing, and the effects and knowledge of what you have done should shame you for the rest of your life. He added that as the father of the victim, Fish's actions were, in my judgment, an appalling abuse of trust. Turning to the teenager's family, the judge said, They have had a great deal to bear. Their burden has been made more painful because of the false accusations made by the defendant. Fisher stood nodding his head in apparent agreement with the judge's comments. A sentence was passed at Swansea Crown Court, and as he was told he would serve a minimum of 20 years imprisonment before being considered for release on licence at which point he will be 68 years old. Before being taken away, Fisher nodded to the judge and said, Thank you. Following Fisher's sentencing, Dovid Powers Police referred itself to the IPCC, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, to investigate their actions after it was revealed that Jane Jones had contacted police concerning Fisher 102 times over an unspecified period before Sasha's killing in August 2009 and had issued grave warnings to them that Sasha was at risk from her violent father. Results of this investigation, which were published on the 29th of October 2010, said that Dovid Powers Police had acted correctly after she was reported missing on the 2nd of August 2009, but it also found that previous concerns raised by her mother had not been dealt with properly by officers. 
the investigation found that four officers, who would be, I quote, subject of management intervention for the way they dealt with some of these reports, had not taken appropriate action in dealing with some of the numerous reports of concerns. Tom Davis, the IPCC Commissioner for Wales at the time, said, Our investigation found that the police acted correctly in how they responded to the report from Sasha's mother that she was missing. As the apparent threat grew, the police acted accordingly and managed to trace and stop Fisher's car. Unfortunately, Sasha was already dead, and it is likely that she'd already been murdered when her mother called the police. The many times that the force dealt with Sasha's mother with previous interactions were not all carried out in accordance with best practice and policy for dealing with reports of possible domestic abuse. This is one of those cases where the force was called out on numerous occasions and there was a tendency for some officers to characterise some of Sasha's mother's concerns and allegations as a tending to overreact. In fact, one of the police constables dealing with these reports did act, but even though Fisher's police national computer record showed he was wanted for a serious assault elsewhere, the officer did fail to act on that information. Mr Davis said there was no suggestion that these individual errors had had any impact on what Fisher went on to do, but he said that domestic abuse was a difficult area for the police, and it was imperative that officers took allegations seriously and proper record and act on intelligence reports. Jackie Roberts, Deputy Chief Constable of Dovid Powers Police at the time, said, Firstly, I would like to express my condolences to Sasha's family for their sad loss. We have noted the findings of the independent IPCC investigation and acknowledge that there are areas in relation to the historic involvement with the family which could have been dealt with better. The IPCC acknowledge that the historic individual errors are not suggested to have influenced the tragic outcome in this case. We are committed to follow up the recommendations made from both policy and operational perspectives which will assist us in delivering a high quality of service and making improvements where necessary. The officers identified as having dealt with previous incidents will be supported in terms of advice and guidance on dealing with such matters and the lessons learned communicated accordingly. Well, you would hope so, wouldn't you? And then perhaps things like this can be avoided, can't they? Though sadly, how often have we heard things like this before? Now, one chink of light from such a dark and senseless tale is that two years later, Sasha's mother Jane was asked to be mayoress of her hometown of Cardigan, asked by then Deputy Mayor Councillor Ian Stoker, who sang her praises and said, She's very much about the community and I think Cardigan will benefit from her input. Part of this testament were based on Jane's plans to set up a charity in honour of Sasha, as well as her hopes to raise the profile of Women's Aid and Amnesty International. Jane told the local media, It is an absolute honour. I couldn't believe it when I was asked. It has been such a terrible couple of years. I've had to put up with malicious rumours and lies about me and my family. Becoming a mayoress is a chance to show what I'm made of and to make a positive difference. 
Describing the two years since the loss of her daughter, Jane added, It has been a very public grief, and I'm not really sure it has hit me yet. I know what my ex has done, and I hate him for it. I've been so angry because I knew what her father was capable of. He had sent us both abusive texts prior to coming to see her. We were all terrified of him. I'd lived in fear for years. Inside, I'm screaming, but I'm not a vindictive person, and I don't even want to think about him. I only want to remember my beautiful daughter. I've had to be very strong over the years, and I'm hoping that my experiences will go some way towards helping our community. I very much recognise how abusive relationships can affect so many lives, and it is important to offer support to those who need it. I want to encourage community spirit to bring people together and to work towards making this area a great place for our children and young people. Jane sounds like she had the right mindset and drive to do good there, and I sincerely hope that she did. Two truly savage crimes here then, and they both fit the definition of senseless, don't they? Your children are supposed to be the most important thing in your life that you love unquestionably, would die to protect, and could never, ever envisage any harm coming to them. So to inflict the worst possible harm upon them yourself, to kill them so brutally, unthinkable. Whenever I've covered tales such as this before, the cases of Philip Austin, Kerry Fuller, or Carl Bluestone come to mind. It strikes me that to do such horror, they must be functioning almost as an automaton, for I just cannot equate how someone thinking any form of logically can do something so abhorrent, and these are the same, certainly Zaidi. Violence against a partner, a current or ex, is sadly too commonplace today to be surprised at, and a possessive individual such as Zaidi, well, had he just murdered his estranged wife, for the reason that she had the nerve, as he saw it, to disobey him, to forge a better and happier life for her and their children, and get away from his control, and he just couldn't let that go. Well, he would have joined the countless statistics of many other individuals who were doing life for similar crimes. But not all of them cut the throats of their seven and six-year-old children, do they? How can any father let his children witness him killing their mother, then kill his eldest child, and then kill his youngest, ignoring his pleas of, don't kill me daddy. And I say again, you can't imagine how horrendous that must have been to hear that recording. It puts you in mind of the harrowing evidence heard in the Moore's murders trial, doesn't it? But to then feel and act calmly enough to get a takeaway curry, to even have a bloody appetite after what you've done, only hours later, and to then when arrested, to absurdly deny your guilt in the face of such overwhelming evidence, and to try to apportion blame on someone else, that it was impossible to have been. That isn't a father, that is a monster who could premeditate murder, but otherwise, one who lives in cloud cuckoo land. The parole board has got this one bang on, refusing Zaidi release and let's hope that he fails at his next hearing in 2025 too, for there is no place on the streets for such an individual. And had he committed his crimes today, it's likely he would have been given a whole life tariff 
not a paltry 20-year minimum tariff for such pure horror. What do you say about Gary Fisher then? It seems to me with him that he was an individual compelled to violence and disturbing behaviour. We heard of his past record. And someone with a propensity to commit such as we heard, then murder isn't really a massive step up for him. But why his daughter? Now something that struck me, and I must stress there was never any evidence of this discovered, this is purely me thinking out loud, but was he abusing Sasha sexually, or at the very least, harbouring thoughts of doing so as she grew into a young woman? It would explain the jealousy angle over Sasha wanting to spend time with her boyfriend instead of her father, this would. And as for the murderous rage, the complete overkill? Had he attempted to indecently assault her at some point during that fateful final journey, and his very real temper had come quickly to the fore when she'd rejected his advances, causing him to react unimaginably and resulting in the most horrific of consequences. Because Fisher continued to stick to this cock and bollocks story of a failed suicide pact, and it is callous that, and as was said, a definite attempt to get a manslaughter verdict rather than a murder one, then we can never know, we can just surmise as I have here. You always think with an individual like Fisher too, violence like this is always in them to commit. It doesn't go away, it merely remains dormant for however long, and that is something that a parole board should consider when it comes to him being considered for release X amount of years down the line. But both of them, Fisher and Zaidi, the destruction of their own flesh and blood, their own children, is surely the worst sin a father can commit. I truly believe also that both of these individuals, having committed such horror, could easily do it again. What do you think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the accounts I've brought you in the episode Sins of the Father, which you can do so in the thread that is up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links should you wish to do so. Always got time for you folks everywhere, I hope you know that by now. With that, it is on to the next tale of darkness now, which will be coming to you very shortly, perhaps even next, depending on whenever you're listening to this. All that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining me in the Pixie today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.